All around us today are people who are doing whatever they want, however they want. That would describe the man we'll meet today in 1 Kings 2. And we'll see where that'll get you next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You delighted to share the next half hour together with you and welcome again to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Ed is just getting started in 1 Kings and we left off in chapter 2. Joab was the sort of guy that was out for himself, divisive, did whatever he wanted. Sadly, things didn't end well for him and we certainly don't want to follow his path to destruction. So let's join Pastor Ed and see how to avoid some of Joab's mistakes. Verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I know it's been a few weeks, but you remember Adonijah. He tried to undermine the kingdom. It was put down in a chapter, but now he's coming, and, and he was shown grace and mercy by not being, his life being taken from him right then and there for treason. So now he comes and comes to Bathsheba, and she asked, do you come peaceably? He says, peaceably, verse 14. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. <laughs> the kingdom was mine? Like to who? Who would possibly think that the kingdom was his except for him? He was fully convinced in his mind and a few people that followed him. And obviously, this is a sign that he's not repentant. I know it's hard sometimes to tell when someone is repentant or not. And we truly need to take somebody at their word when they say they are. But over time, they will either demonstrate the fruits of repentance or they won't. And that's certainly something that can be brought up as a conversation piece in relationship to repentance. If there are no fruits of repentance, like Adonijah here, if you didn't read ahead... And you can hear he's coming to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, David's former wife, or David's widow, I should say, and coming. And he says to her, you know the kingdom was mine. If you didn't know the rest of the chapter, you can guess the rest of the chapter. Is this going to be good or bad? Why? Because he's not repentant. Listen, if your repentance is not real, bad awaits you and me. It's not going to get good with fake repentance. Relationships aren't going to be restored with fake repentance. God is not going to bless us when we are not telling the truth. And Adonijah, he's, this is why, you know, David warned Solomon about Joab and Shimei because they're manipulators. And this time you'll see God covers Solomon with Adonijah, you'll see in a minute. Notice with me, uh, verse 15. Then he said, you know, the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me. Really, all Israel? Really? 
that I should reign. However, the kingdom's been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. So spiritual, such spiritual talk. The kingdom was mine. Everybody wanted me, but my brother's the king because it was the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. And she said, say it. Then he said, verse 17, please speak to the king Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I'll speak for you to the king. Bathsheba, therefore, went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king rose up to meet her, bowed down to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne set for his king's mother. So she sat at his right hand, and she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, his wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he's my older brother, and for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. And King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore... As the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house, and he's promised Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Very interesting. Adonijah comes to Bathsheba in such shamelessness, trying to sound spiritual, but his words betray him, saying the kingdom was his, the only place the kingdom was his was in his own warped mind and people that followed him for their own personal pleasures. And he asked for Abishag to be his wife. What's the big deal? Well, it's the same as Absalom did earlier. For those of you that have been with us through our study in Samuel, Absalom, when he had relationships with his dad's ten concubines, was a technical, it was a, a technical fulfillment that now I'm in control and I'm in control to bring shame to the previous king. And that's what he wants here. He wants to take control by taking Abishag. And what's puzzling to me, and I don't quite have the answer, uh, I'm processing it myself. I I have a suggestion, but you can study it and you can come to your own conclusion. But why did Bathsheba go to Solomon on behalf of Adonijah with all that she knew. I mean, there's a couple thoughts. The Bible doesn't really say, but a couple thoughts. We know David made a lot of mistakes as a dad. Certainly Bathsheba is making a mistake as a mom here. Could be a maternal thing here, or perhaps she doesn't want to get in the middle of an argument. Or another suggestion that I really lean toward is I know she knows the rebellion. She watched it happen, how it stopped. She knows, she knows of all the details, uh, at least from a spectator uh, point of view, but perhaps even more being uh, David's wife, um, that she knows what happened. And the question would be whether, whether she's cooperating with Adonijah or not. I don't think so. I think she is recognizing that Solomon just got exhorted by his dad is going to take a strong stand and is going to take the right stand as he does here. That she's going to, she wants to see this thing done 
And instead of coming and sharing everything that was shared, she just comes in and allows the Lord to use Solomon. And maybe, a, maybe God even allows it as a test for Solomon. Because obviously the graciousness of house arrest didn't work for him. Uh, he didn't respond to grace with his own grace or his own love or his own uh, repentance. And he reaps what he's sown in an instant. Solomon will have none of it. Takes care of it. Um, puts down the rebellion before it even starts. And it just reminded me in my own life, it's like a warning to me that uh, we talked a little bit about it today as a staff too. Like, you know, if there's sin in the camp or, you know, there's an ache in among us uh, that, that God will deal with that and people will get hurt by hidden sin. And sin will, has a way of catching up to you when it's not forsaken and when it's not repented of and not dealt with before the Lord. It'll catch up to you. And never mistake the patience of God with the graciousness of God or the mercy of God or even mistaking his patience with his approval. God doesn't approve of sin and he gets it. He had a chance. He was graciously given a chance and he still loses his life because he didn't repent. Verse 26. Now to Abiathar the priest, the king said, go to Anathoth to your own fields for you are worthy of death. But I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David. And because you were afflicted, and so Solomon removed Abiathar from uh, being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Uh, which, as we learned earlier in the Old Testament when we were studying through, uh, the horns of the altar represented a place of protection and refuge. Uh, you, you, were, you were thought to have uh, that place of protection. And he ran as well, knowing that his life was in danger. And King Solomon, verse 29, was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is at, by the altar. And then Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaniah went into the temple or tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaniah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Well, do as he said. Strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men, more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon the house and his throne, there shall be no peace forever from the Lord. So Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his house in the wilderness. Then the king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. So for their part in the latest rebellion, Joab was executed, and Abiathar was removed from the priesthood. I want to show you something, uh, because this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I know it's been a long time since we studied uh, in 1 Samuel, but come back to me in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Abiathar's removal... Uh, fulfills the word spoken in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. If you like to do cross-references, you can jot this down as a cross-reference. 1 Samuel 2, 30. 
Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. And now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Therefore the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my habitation despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And in one day they shall die, both of them. Wow. Job was a man out only for himself. He becomes a type of man or a type of of man that we simply don't want to become. Someone that's only out for ourselves. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For such, verse 18, for those are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. So much peace and unity would be among the body of Christ if we would obey this verse. This, is, this verse in Romans 16, these verses, really describe Joab in the Old Testament, a divisive man who's after his own belly, with smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts. Joab, as you studied his life, did whatever he wanted, however he wanted, without care or concern for the pain that he would cause others or even the consequences that he might bring on himself. I'm fairly convinced. I really haven't studied Joab in all that detail, although it would be a, a good study to go through to watch his life so we learn what to avoid. But, you know, he... he he tended to make decisions regardless of the consequences. But, but I even come, I, I think that he thought there would be no consequences, that he would get away with it, that, that he would not have to deal with anything, that he, you, you get successful a few times with manipulation or smooth words. You, you, you get away with it a couple of times, it only emboldens you to do it more. I don't know. It would be a good study to do. Maybe somebody, one of you, one of you guys can spend a couple months studying that for me and let me know uh, what you find. It'd be interesting. He was a careless man. He was a reckless man. And he was a shameless man. And God ha- God's word has very strong words to say concerning those in the name of Jesus Christ that live continually, habitually, persistent in their sin. Those that refuse to change or repent. You'll even hear some use the Bible in such a way where truths are twisted to support their obvious sinful decisions. Joab is such a man. The constant refusal to respond to the chastening of the Lord, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and to the clear teaching of the Word of God. And Joab being dragged from the altar should be a real warning to us that we would come clean before the Lord if and when necessary. And in these last days, I pray that none in our fellowship None of us here, none of us in the larger body of Christ, uh, the larger body of Calvary, and it's the larger body of Christ, would be lulled away from Jesus through deceptive sin, through the current of the world. That we would learn to walk carefully and prayerfully in a dark, difficult world, even the church world, even the way that the church world's going. We're seeing more and more divorce. 
More and more adultery, more and more apathy, more and more fornication, more and more drunkenness, more and more carousing and partying and just walking away from the things of the Lord and at the same time saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, as a fellow believer, it's heart-wrenching to watch, to see, to experience. It's a very difficult thing to see. It's a very difficult thing to watch. And it's increasing more and more. I mean, the Bible says it will. But for those that are still listening, for those of us that are still seeking, for those of us that are still pressing on, it serves as a warning that we don't become like them. We don't stand in judgment. We, we sit heartbroken and pray. Especially as come to mind in my life, people that bore much fruit for the kingdom at one time in their life who had a, a, at least the appearance of a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. Who could share with you the scriptures even without opening the Bible because they hid God's word in their hearts. It's still in there. That's why you pray that the Holy Spirit can activate the word in their hearts to bring them back to himself. That we might take the position of the prodigal's father, not the prodigal's older brother. That our hearts would break for our wayward sons and daughters as we watch them make decisions and then we watch them walk right away into a world that for some of us we already know how it's going to end we were there ourselves we already know the pain that's going to come it's only a matter of time joab is a warning that it's going to come joab seemed to get away with this thing over here and this thing over here and now he got through david he got through David. He's now with Solomon. But then Adonijah comes. And you know, I still want to be with who's popular. And I still want to go, maybe I'm going to cast my lot with Adonijah. But then the Lord just deals with Adonijah. And he goes, whoa, wait a minute. And where, where, do, we find, where do we find Joab next? Running. Running for safety in a place where he would find no safety. I mean, if he ran to the tabernacle and instead of grabbing the horns of the altar, he fell on his face in repentance, perhaps the Lord would have done something. If he didn't run to have the appearance of spirituality and try to take advantage of the promises of God for his own protection, and instead he ran to the tabernacle and he said, God, I'm sorry. I've lived my life in rebellion to you and in rebellion to the people. If he would have done that, perhaps it would have been different. And for those of you listening in on the radio right now, uh, maybe you're not in your church right now or you haven't been to church in a while. If you're going to run to the tabernacle, run. Run in the way of repentance. As David would say in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and you only, God, I have sinned. And that's where it begins. And that's really where it ends. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now, brethren, concerning of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first. This is a dilemma. If you've ever thought, I don't know if you've ever thought of this. But in our heart of hearts, 
I want to see the rapture. I want to see it with my own eyes. I want to be caught up in the rapture. I want to be of that group that doesn't die, but in the twinkling of an eye is transformed. I want to be that. I'm certain some of you do as well. Like, who wouldn't want the rapture to happen in a few seconds? Just before you finish, Ed, just uh, no more. You're going to go over. Just, just come, Lord Jesus. And we have some paradoxes, don't we? Because on, on the one hand, yes, I, w- I want the Lord to come. But, but at the same time, there are people I know I want to be saved. So I wrestle. I don't want to control God. I don't want to command God. I don't want to demand from God. But I want him to come. But there's a part of me that says, no, I mean, man, I'm so grateful that he didn't come uh, in 1990. If he came in 1990, I would have missed out. I would have been left behind. I don't know what decisions I would have made, but I'm grateful that, that he delayed his coming, or at least what we view as a delay, until, at least until even now. But, but here's, here's another paradox when it comes to the return of the Lord, and that is it appears to be the generation that sees the rapture is the generation that's going to see a great falling away. And that is going to be painful. A division of the believers and the make-believers among our own fellowship. That we, the generation that would see the coming of the Lord is going to be the generation that sees a great falling away. Greater than we've ever seen before. And I'll tell you right now, I don't want to see that. I don't want to experience it. And I don't want to feel it. I could tell you right now, in my own heart of hearts, where I stand with you right now, I don't think I could handle it. I'm sure the Lord will give me grace if I have to see it, but I don't think I could handle it. It'll rip my heart out. To know of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that will come because of, because of countless people that we thought from all accounts were strong believers fall away and walk away from God. The man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition, opposes and exalts himself about all that's called God or that's worship. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I don't believe the falling away is like an event. I believe it's a process. And perhaps, I don't know, but maybe we're beginning to see it now. Or it began generations ago, and it's increasing as we see. Things are definitely getting more difficult with pressures and oppressions. Temptations are becoming more tempting. Enticements are becoming more enticing. I like how 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is in the New Living Translation. It says, But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful, and he will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. Or as the New King James says, that we'll also make up a way of escape that you can bear it. That's a promise to hold on to. We don't have to become like Joab. Thanks for studying alongside of us on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Are you interested in a CD copy of this message? We can send that your way for $2 if you'll call toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. Again, that's 
888-888-7223. For instant access, look for the studies online at calvaryaurora.org. Another way to listen to Ed's teachings is through the Calvary Aurora and Grace FM Colorado apps. Search for Calvary Aurora. We've picked out a wonderful book by Gene Edwards this month that we think you'll benefit from. It's A Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. It features the stories of David, Saul, and Absalom. If you've ever experienced pain, loss, or heartache at the hands of others, this is a must-read. The Lord can certainly use it to bring comfort and healing into your life, too. When you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, ask for a copy of A Tale of Three Kings. Give us a call at 877-30-GRACE or make a secure donation online at calvaryaurora.org. Those that prefer to write, here's our mailing address, Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. Then be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor next time for more teaching from the Word of God. That's right here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.